And there you have it. How are we doing this morning, church? Still good? Still good? All right. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open with me to the book of Mark, chapter 8, the gospel of Mark. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're going to be in the, the gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, with all the things that are going on in Houston this past week, I know many of you have uh, seen it on Facebook and social media and all the news outlets and all that different stuff, but, but there's a lot going on in Houston, and so we're continuing as a church. We want to encourage you as a church to, to continue praying for those. Uh, Pastor Chip's going to be outlining some things that we're going to be doing as a church in the coming weeks and months. He was a, a kind of a victim of Katrina back in the day when he was in New Orleans, and so he knows what it's like to, to be in the situation that a lot of people in Houston find themselves in, uh, even this morning. And, uh, and so we're going to be looking at what we can do as a church kind of in response to that. But I've been reading all kinds of things, and it's been great to see the outpouring of what's been happening uh, by the church for people of Houston. I read this past week of a pastor who he was telling the story. Uh, he's a pastor in Houston, and, and he, his, his, his church was actually the recipient of a blessing from a church on the other side of the world. Uh, apparently, there is a church in Uganda and if you know anything about Uganda, Uganda is not the richest and wealthiest kind of nation on the face of the planet. Uh, in many ways, they're, they're poverty-stricken and things of that nature. But here's the deal. That church in Uganda, they actually collected an offering among all of their people, and they sent what they received entirely to Houston and this church. I mean, that's, that's, that's a great picture of what the church is and who the church is because, you know what, it doesn't matter how much you have, it just matters that you realize that, that we are one church. And so that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And I just wanted to share that with you, just maybe as an encouragement, uh, because people of Uganda, they, they get it. And uh, my prayer is that, that we can continue to learn, even from our brothers that may not have as much material wealth as we do, uh, but at the same time, they have a heart that's been transformed by Jesus. And so there you go. That was, that was free. Uh, so praise the Lord for what the Lord's doing in Uganda. So if you're in Mark chapter 8, I want to encourage you this morning, uh, as we kind of jump into this thing, I want you to think back for just a moment. I want you to think back what your life was like before you became a Christian. We, we, we don't tend to do that very often. Maybe you're not even a Christian yet, but, but, but you, you're kind of checking this whole faith thing out and just to see what in the world's going on with it, and kind of, you're kind of here investigating. That's okay. You're, full, you're absolutely welcome here. Uh, as, as I said earlier, um, you know, I'm not the lead pastor here. Our pastor is actually kind of out this weekend. He's just taking a little break, and, uh, and so I get to preach this morning, so I thank you for having me. Uh, but I want to ask you to, to just begin there. Think back what your life was like before you came to Jesus, and then I want you to think about why did you begin coming towards faith? Like, what was it about your life that, 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 that kind of drew you maybe to the church? Maybe you heard the gospel for the very first time, and you began to respond to that. Uh, as a pastor, I get to sit down with a lot of people, and I get to have kind of a backstage picture of what the lives of people are actually like. And so I get this all the time. Uh, many people, they, they come to Jesus, so they come to the church thinking that they're going to get something out of it. They come kind of like a consumer of goods. And they come with this mindset of maybe that there's a crisis in their life or in their family, and they believe that the church or Jesus can kind of help them with that. Maybe, and, and I get this one as well, uh, I've had people tell me before, you know, I was afraid that I would go to hell. You know, I heard this idea about hell, that it existed, and when I heard what it really was, it, it scared me. 
And so I began investigating it and see what it was. And so I began to, to listen. And, and then literally when I heard what hell was, I, like I ran to Jesus. And it's, that, can be, that can be a good thing uh, as well. Another thing is, is when you have a family. Uh, you want to add stability to your family, and so you come back to church. Maybe you grew up in the church, and you kind of wandered away for whatever reason, but, but you decided that now that you have a family, you want to get that family back into church because you believe that it adds stability. It gives some kind of rootedness within your family, and so you want to give your family that kind of a faith. Or, or maybe you just felt that, that you needed to be a good religious person. You know, there, there's endless opportunities here. There's endless reasons why we might come to a church. There's endless reasons why we might come to Jesus. But I tend to believe that the reason that we tend to even begin to investigate is because we believe that faith, we believe that following Christ can add value to our lives in some way, shape, or form. And we tend to, as a result of that, we tend to believe that we can get something kind of from Jesus. And this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. You know, the Lord often uses those reasons to actually draw us to himself, which the result of that is, is good if we are being drawn to the Lord. And Jesus, he seemed to have dealt with that very thing over and over and over again in the scripture. You see, in the four gospel accounts, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus seemed to have dealt with that over and over and over. You see, what, what Jesus says to Peter here is, is the only thing that's recorded in all four of the gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record this, this instance that we're going to look at this morning in all four Gospels. So it's essentially saying this is, this is something that Jesus said over and over and over and over again. It was like a broken record. So if I tell the same stories or if Pastor Chip tells the same stories or if the fathers of your family tell you the same stories over and over and over again, guess what? They're being like Jesus. So men, there you go. You have freedom to tell a story, the same story that you've been telling for years over and over and over and over again because you're being more like Jesus. There you go, right? That's freedom. Everybody else, you just got to deal with it. That's what's going to happen. So in Mark chapter 8, we need to understand the context of what's happening in the entire chapter before we can actually fully understand or better understand what's happening in our primary text this morning, beginning in verse 27. So I'm going to try my best to give you as condensed and concise a picture as I possibly can of all of what's happening in chapter 8. So you ready to go with that? You ready? This is the interaction portion of our segment. It's okay to talk. It's all right. I realize many of you talk with your pens. That's perfectly fine. But uh, this is how we can interact with the scripture because we realize that there's more going on here in the text than what we may understand. So let's just begin with this idea. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, uh, I would encourage you to pull out your, your worship folder. There's actually some blanks in there, and uh, we'll be able to fill in the blanks and kind of get kind of a, a skeleton of what Mark is going to lay before us this morning. So in your notes, you see the very first thing I want you to do to, to is, is, number one, to see Jesus as the Messiah, all right? The context of, these, of this passage of chapter 8 is going to be Mark telling us and instructing us that he wants us to see Jesus as the Messiah. So in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 8, Jesus performs a miracle where he feeds 4,000 people with essentially the equivalent of what we would consider a Lunchable, right? Like, you know what a Lunchable is? It's a very small thing. It's, you know, one meal oriented. But Jesus multiplies that into feeding multiple thousands of people. And he does that, and he wants to prove to them that he is the Messiah. 
So in verses 11 through 13, the Pharisees, they see this miracle, but then they pull Jesus aside and they begin to question him. And they want to ask him some questions and they want to demand that Jesus provide them more proof that he is the Messiah and that proof needs to come from heaven. And so Jesus, he, he hears this and he, and he sees that the Pharisees have unbelief in their hearts. They have hardness of hearts that they are not believing even after seeing this very first miracle that Jesus had just performed, a feeding of the 4,000, they ask for another miracle. And so he doesn't perform this miracle. You see, here's the, here's the idea is that people who demand another miracle, they demand more evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, they can never be satisfied. Because it wouldn't matter how much evidence Jesus would heap up on top of each other, they would never be satisfied because the evidence is not the issue. It's the hardness of their hearts. They refuse to accept it as truth. And so Jesus, he is caring for the afflicted. He is feeding the hungry. But here's what he's not doing. He's not overthrowing Rome. And as a result of what he's not doing, the Pharisees, they don't have even a category in their minds for a Messiah who is not doing these kinds of things. So in verses 11 through 13, the Pharisees, they refuse to see Jesus as the Messiah. But then in verses 14 through 21, Jesus points to the disciples. And he begins to point out that even they don't see clearly. Verses 14 through 21, the disciples, they essentially had a weird conversation. Essentially, they forgot bread. And they have all these people in front of them, and and they begin talking about this bread. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to to really caution the disciples. And in verse 15, Jesus warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And leaven symbolizes corruption. It's It's the infectious power of evil. And here's what the disciples and the Pharisees both had in common. They would not embrace Jesus as Lord at this point up to this point in in the Gospels. And then verse 16, the disciples start quabbling about this predicament that's revolving around bread. And verses 17 through 20, Jesus jogs their memory with a series of questions about the previous feedings that he had already performed the miracles for. And essentially he's saying, you know what, I've already proven to you, I've already given you proof that I am a miracle-working God, that that I have provided food where there was not enough food. I provided everything that you needed. And here's the deal. He's going to teach his disciples that bread is not really what they need to worry about anyway. Like if Jesus can feed 9,000 people previously, he can feed the 13 right there. Verse 21, Jesus points to the bigger problem, which is their hardness of hearts. But Jesus doesn't give up on the disciples. Look at verse 21 real quick with me. It says this. It says, he said to them, do you still not understand? You see that little phrase, still not, in verse 21? I believe that that little phrase, still not, is so unbelievably hopeful. Because they still have not understood who Jesus is. But if they keep following Jesus, eventually they will see. And so that leads us to this miracle. And in verses 22 through 26, a blind man sees, but he begins to see gradually. This miracle not only shows the compassion of Jesus, but it also, in this particular precise context, is given to us to illustrate the nature 
of the disciples. You see, they, the, the disciples at this point in the gospel accounts, they can see, but they cannot see fully who Jesus is. And gradually, they will be able to see, but that's going to happen only after the resurrection of Jesus, when everything that Jesus has been saying and doing will eventually make sense to them. And so in verses 22 through 23, after taking the blind man away and spitting in his eyes to perform this miracle for taking the, the blind man to see, Jesus begins to act more and more like a physician. And so he asks him a question. He says, do you see anything? And after the first time, it seems if this particular miracle was kind of a failed attempt, if we're being honest with, with, with ourselves, because it's almost as though Jesus has lost his mojo, but, but Jesus, he hasn't really lost his mojo. He's doing this for a purpose. He is performing this miracle, not only the fact that he is performing a miracle, but the way in which he is performing a miracle is significant. Because in verses 24 through 26, the man says that he can see, but he doesn't have good focus. He, he says that he sees men who look like trees. And Jesus, then, he repeats the same procedure. And then he tells the man, after he can actually see, after he does it a second time, he says, go to your village and don't tell anybody about what I just did. Don't go tell anybody. And so there, there's, there's a picture with this particular miracle that is not only a miracle, but it's also an illustration. And this two-stage miracle appears right between the two examples of the disciples' blindness. And the miracle serves as an illustration of the disciples' spiritual condition. You see, Jesus is the Messiah. And Peter's confession that we're going to be looking at here in just a few moments, Peter is going to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, but he only sees in part at this point. But eventually, after he sees what Jesus does on the cross, he will see in full. So the Messiah must go and die. He must suffer and die. And now that we have all of that context, and that's a lot of context. I realize I just threw a lot at you. But you must understand the context of this passage of Scripture to understand the significance of what's going on in verses 27 through 38. So let's look at it together. Mark is going to give us our second objective beginning right here. And in your notes, if, if you're taking notes, he calls us to number two, confess Jesus as the Messiah. So he wants you in the, the first 26 verses to see Jesus as the Messiah. Now he's going to encourage us to confess Jesus as the Messiah. Look at me, look with me at verse 27. He says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. So that city was, was really known for their idolatry. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So I want you to see this, that these are the culture's answers to this question that Jesus just asked. Some say John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he was a thundering preacher of repentance. Uh, he, he was a man who, who pointed towards Jesus. He was a forerunner to Jesus, and everything that he said and did was pointing to the coming Messiah. And that's good. 
Then he said, some say Elijah. Elijah was a miracle worker in the Old Testament. He was, he was kind of this, this end times figure that we see uh, in, in the Old Testament. And then he says, some others say the, one of the prophets. And here's what you need to understand about all of these answers. All of these were positive views of Jesus, but all three of them were inaccurate in some way, shape, or form. You see, Jesus, he, he wasn't a forerunner to Jesus. That's redundant, right? Like, he, he, Jesus was not a pointer to a coming Messiah. Jesus was the coming Messiah. Jesus was not pointing towards. Jesus was the point. And that's what we need to see in this text. You see, Jesus was a preacher of repentance, just like John the Baptist. Jesus was a miracle-working prophet, just like Elijah. But he was so much more than all of those things. Look at me at verse 29. He said, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And here's what you need to know about the the word you in this particular context. is The the word you here is plural. So if if we were to translate this into our Winderian accent and understand that the text here, it would be more more appropriate to say, what about y'all, right? Maybe we understand that a little bit better. So, who do y'all say that I am? And then the, the angels begin to hold their breath because Peter still has his foot in his mouth, but he's fixing to speak. And so it says, Peter answered, you are the Christ. In other words, the Messiah. And now this is a big deal. This is a huge, huge deal. Because the Jews had been waiting for this Messiah, this Christ, for over 3,000 years. And the Christ, God had said, would overthrow the Roman government. He would overthrow the Roman oppression. He would right all the wrongs. He would stop injustice. He would put an end to the curse. And Peter says, Jesus, we recognize that you are that one who will do all of those things. And Peter gets it right. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that a confession from an actual person took place. You see, Mark states Jesus' identity in the very first verse of Mark chapter 1, verse 1. God the Father actually declared who Jesus was at his baptism in chapter 1, verse 11. Even the demons had confessed Jesus is the Messiah in verse, chapter 1, verses 24, and then again in chapter 5, verse 7. But now, midway through the Gospel of Mark, we see the very first time that a follower of Jesus, a person, actually confessed who Jesus is, and Peter, of all people, got it right. And Jesus wasn't just the king, he was the king of kings. He was the the king to end all kings. Matthew 16, verse 17 adds that, that God showed this to Peter. That God opened Peter's eyes. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 says, May the eyes of your heart be enlightened. Did you know that your heart has eyes? Your heart has eyes. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 says, Only God can overcome our blindness. No one says Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You see, following Jesus is, is based around one truth. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Look at verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. 
Now, this is an interesting verse because essentially Jesus is telling his disciples to keep their mouths shut. But here's the reason, here's essentially the reason why. Have you ever begun to tell a story, but you weren't really sure how the end of the story actually happened? And so you got into it, and then you figured out, I really don't know how to end this story. (laughs) Maybe you've been there before. Well, that's essentially what is happening with the disciples. The disciples, they know what has happened up to this point, but Jesus, his point here is, you know only part of the story. So if you begin telling the story, you're going to come to a point where you don't actually understand what's going to happen in the end. So it would be beneficial for you if you just would not even tell the story at this point. And so that's essentially what is happening here in verse 30. And Jesus is going to outline, begin outlining what he came to do so that the disciples can more fully understand why Jesus gives them this command. So I want you to see this. If you're taking notes, I want to to see number three, to follow Jesus as the Messiah. That's what he wants us to see, is to follow Jesus as the Messiah. So Jesus tells his purpose through this prediction. Look at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, I want you to look at the word must there. That is a hugely important phrase and word within the Bible. He's saying that I have to die. That's what Jesus is saying here. Could Jesus have saved us any other way? According to the scripture, the answer to that question is no. Here's the reason why. Either Jesus suffers for our sins or we suffer eternally for our sins. That's just what the Bible teaches. It teaches that over and over and over again. Look at verse 32. He spoke plainly about this and Peter, now you need to understand something about Peter. Like this did not make sense to Peter. Like a a Messiah who suffers was a category that, that did not make sense to the mind of Peter or anyone in his generation. You see, this Christ, he was supposed to put an end to suffering, not suffer himself. But he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter decides to to go pull Jesus aside and to to begin to explain to him the entire Old Testament, essentially. And and maybe he thought that that he was confident because he had gotten one thing right. Maybe, Maybe you've been there before. You get confident that you've done one thing right, and you think that you can't mess up anything else. And And sometimes that just kind of backfires on you because the reality is Peter had never put these two things together. Like the Son of Man and suffering, he had a category for each of those, but just not both of those together. And Peter, he had been told from an early age that this this king would come. He would be a conquering king and the government would be upon his shoulders. But he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, you don't even have an army. Like, he was familiar with David. Like in the Old Testament, David, he had an army and he, had, he was able to conquer his enemies. And that's how he knew that, that David was king because he had an army that could conquer his enemies. And Jesus, he didn't have an army. And so it didn't make sense. But Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem not to live and reign on a throne, but to die on a cross. You see, all kings up to this point 
they had gone to a throne. But Jesus' point was to go to a cross. And verse 33 says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, rebukes are typically done kind of privately, but Jesus rebuked Peter publicly here because he needed to to, to show everyone that what Peter had just said was so wrong and dangerous that it needed to be dealt with publicly. And so what we see Jesus came to do here, now we will see what Jesus calls us as his followers to do. Look at verse 34. It says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So this is the call of a disciple of Jesus. He says, first of all, to deny yourself. Now, everything in us wants to reject this outright. And if we don't want to reject it, we want to begin to try to redefine what that actually means. So instead of sacrificing really important things in our lives, we tend to think of, you know, we'll, we'll begin to, to sacrifice very simple things. Like Netflix binge watching, right? Uh, maybe our slight coffee addiction. We'll, we'll sacrifice those things for the sake of, of, of King Jesus, right? And those things are good. Those things, those, those things aren't necessarily wrong or evil. But, but here's the deal. Jesus calls his disciples to deny themselves. But then he also, he doesn't make it easier. He says one more thing, that, that, and, and honestly, it just gets harder and harder. He says to take up your cross. Now, a cross here, you must understand, is, is, is painful. I know we tend to wear them as like jewelry and decorative pieces, but it doesn't really make sense if you understand what the cross was in context. I mean, none of us are wearing electric chairs around our necks. Uh, that's just a reality. But that's what the cross really is. It's, a, it's an instrument of torture. And it's painful, and it's gradual, but it's also final. You see, it, literally being, being a person who takes up your cross it literally means that you are willing to pay any price to follow Jesus, to be treated as though you were a criminal, to be, to be rejected, to be thrown away. But the cross was also vivid. It was an instrument of the worst criminals, and history plus the Bible actually teaches us that that a hundred men had been crucified in Caesarea Philippi right before Jesus had this conversation with his disciples. And so when Jesus is telling his disciples to deny yourself and to take up your cross, he's literally doing it as though there were a hundred people right here that were hanging on crosses. And that's the background of what Jesus actually called his disciples to do and his disciples to be. You see, Jesus uses this image to confront a satanic diversion, a, a perversion of faith. But it's one that's regularly held by Christians even today. It was certainly held by Peter at this time and, and point of, in his life. And it's called consumer faith. It has three elements, and we're going to quickly cover those and, and be out of here in just a little bit. But the first thing is you have consumer faith if you expect Christ to remove all hardship from your life. If you expect Christ to remove all hardship from your life. You see, Peter expresses the heart of Christian immaturity. When when Jesus Christ came so that I wouldn't suffer. That is the essence of Christian immaturity. But Jesus said, no, Peter, uh, I didn't come so that you would not suffer. I came rather to redeem your suffering. I didn't come to stop your pain. I came to redeem your pain. 
and give that pain meaning. So this morning, if you're going through a difficult trial, consider it pure joy because Jesus wants to redeem that. That's good news. And, and Jesus tells Peter that until he understands this, he should not even speak. And so we now begin to see more and more of why verse 30 actually makes sense. You see, many immature Christians, they just assume that, that salvation means that, that suffering in this life will, will end. And if you suffer, then somehow God is not doing what he promised that he would do. And when you find out that he may not re, like just remove every problem from your life, then, then you begin to go through a test like Peter did. And you have to ask yourself the question, why am I following Jesus? Are you following him because of what you think he can provide for you or because he is valuable and more valuable than life itself? You see, all of us have certain expectations of Jesus. Unless it may be very similar to what Peter was expecting, but it may be very different. Uh, I would would just bet to say that that many of us don't have the expectation that, that, that God would overthrow Rome and the government and all that different stuff unless you've been playing way too many video games but but uh we do have certain expectations that we put upon God that that God would be more like a genie in a bottle for us that he would be part therapist part life coach personal cheerleader like financial advisor that's who we want to see God as but a God who exists for your purposes your beck and call is, is not one of the Bible. And so what are we going to do when we, when we have the expectation of Jesus, but he doesn't meet that expectation? You see, it's going to be a moment of, of truth for you. And secondly, you have consumer faith if you think of, a, of discipleship in terms of self-fulfillment instead of sacrifice. You see, Peter thought of Christ as someone who would make his life better. But Jesus starts talking about willingly going to this cross, and and this is not a completion of his life, but this is rather a forfeiture of his life. Is that the kind of picture that we have of Jesus? What do you think Jesus' purpose was in saving you? You see, many people assume that becoming a Christian just means cleaning up your life. Maybe you, you get a little bit of help from God along the way, and eventually you get to heaven. That's what many people just tend to think. But Jesus said it means offering yourself without restriction to him and offering up your life the way that he has instructed us to. The third thing is you have consumer faith if your obedience to Christ has limits. You see, Peter was excited about following Jesus when it meant healing and power and authority and popularity. But if you remember... Peter had actually walked away from a very lucrative uh, fishing business and career. But now Jesus is talking about a life that includes suffering and sacrifice and service. And so Peter is confronted by Jesus with this question. Peter, are you following me because of what you think I can give to you? Or are you following me to get me? It's a question that we're all encountering with Jesus every day of every moment of every day. Are you following Jesus because of what you think you can get from him, or are you following Jesus because you get Jesus? That's a huge question. That's a tough question to answer for many of us. But here's the truth. Following Jesus is not always easy. Write this down if you're taking notes. Salvation is free. It costs us nothing. 
But following Jesus will inevitably cost us something. Maybe even everything. That's just true. At some point, obedience to Jesus is going to take us in a 180 degree direction opposite of where we want to go. But he's going to call us to do that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it best. He said, when Jesus bids a man to follow him, he bids him to come and die. So let's finish up this this text with the last instruction of verse 34. It says, follow me. You follow Jesus by joining him in what he sent us to do. It's joining him in his mission. And following Jesus means doing what he came to do, which is rescuing people, loving people, laying down your life for the sake of the gospel. And Jesus' demands on our lives are total. And that is big. That that, that passage is, is huge and it's very weighty, but at the same time, he wants to give you three motivations to help you with that, because if, if all you can do is just follow him, take up your cross, like, like that, those are weighty things. But he's going to give you three motivations for why you should do this. So the first motivation is Jesus brings life through obedience. Verse 35, for, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You see, obedience to Jesus Sometimes it feels like death to us. But through that obedience, God promises us life and life more abundantly. That's the only way to life. And the second motivation that he gives is you can't hold on to it anyway. Look at verse 36. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You see, whatever you're holding on to in this life that keeps you from full surrender to Jesus, inevitably you are going to lose that thing anyway. Jesus asks us the question, what would you hang on to now that would be worth your soul in the end? And whatever you are holding on to now, you're going to lose that anyway one day. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The third motivation that Jesus gives is Jesus was not ashamed of you. Jesus was not ashamed of you. Verse 38 says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the Father's glory with the, with the holy angels. And the irony of this entire verse is that Jesus, the one who should have been ashamed of us, was not ashamed of us. The cross that Jesus picked up, he did so voluntarily. He did not look at me or you or anyone and say, that person is worthy of me giving my life. Rather, he's looked at us in our sinful state and he said, you know what, that person does not deserve it at all. They are the least deserving person on the face of the planet and yet I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to give my life for their life. Jesus has nothing to gain by this and everything to lose. And yet out of love for me, out of love for us, he identified himself with us and he picked up his cross to save us. Is a God like that not worth following? Is a God like that not worth following? You see, this is where we're going to land this morning. What kind of a person does Jesus use? 
He uses ordinary people, just like these disciples who all they do is they take up their cross and they follow Jesus. He, he uses people who are willing to suffer now for glory later. When I was reading about this a few weeks ago, there was this missionary named John Patton. He was, he was called by the Lord to go serve in, in a place that, that the people there were cannibals. And, uh, and, and everybody was trying to tell him, you should not do this. This is a really, really bad idea. He just looked at him and said, you know, the Lord called me to do it. And so he, he, just, he just decided, you know, I'm going to go do this. And they continued on and they said, you should not do this. And he finally just looked at him and this was kind of the thing that just kept everybody from continuing to argue with him. He said, here's the deal, I'm already a dead man. And you can't kill a dead man. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You see, the people for whom Jesus and God uses are people who die to self. And they say that Jesus is everything to me. So what kind of Messiah is this? He's the kind of Messiah that we need. And so the call this morning is very simple. To see Jesus for who he is. And to follow him. To confess him. And to follow him. Until you see him in glory. And on that day you won't regret having followed him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning. God, I know that, that your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And so, Father, I pray right now for the person who's maybe hearing the gospel for the very first time. God, I pray for the person who's hearing this for the, the hundredth time or the thousandth time. But, God, they've never been pricked by your word. And, God, they don't even realize that what you've already done for them, what you've already died for them, God, I pray that you would just continue to use this word, use your word this week. God, my words are, and that's all they are, is just words. But God, your word is living and active. So Father, I pray right now that, that for the person who's just sitting in the seat struggling with these words, God, I pray that you would continue to prick their heart. Help them to see. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear. God, what you have done for them, but God, also what you have called them to and for. Lord, we love you. We ask this all in your precious name through Jesus. Amen.